Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on what is a cloudy spring morning here in the capital is Javen Brammel. Javen is the owner of Digital Glue, an agency specialising in social media marketing strategy and protocol. Um, Javen, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Good morning, Scott. Great to be with you. It's a real pleasure, Javen. Um, certainly not the nicest day for it, uh, but we've had some terrible, terrible spring weather so far. And uh, I suppose it's sort of been an epitome of the mood we've been in over the last 14 months, hasn't it? We've um, had sort of so many, many, many weeks and months of sort of lockdown restrictions and social freedoms being taken away. And after 14 months, we're still in the grip of that global pandemic. And I think it's right that we address that elephant in the room first and foremost, isn't it? So reflecting on the last year, how would you say this whole situation has affected you and your business? It's been a really mixed bag, to be honest, Scott. It's really fascinating. I think when we came into the uh, into the pandemic, um, as you say, sort of February, March time last year, lots of uncertainty, lots of unknowns. Um, certainly as a business, um, you know, we saw quite a significant shift from from our customers responding to that, looking after their, their finances, looking after their own businesses, of course, and um, making sure they were in a good place. And, and that had a, a short-term impact on, on our business. Um, but um, as the uh, pandemic progressed, from a, at least from a customer perspective, um, that stabilised fairly quickly. And by, by summertime last year, we were actually sort of back up and running at full speed and, um, and actually growing through this last period. And being in the digital space um, as we are, we've also seen uh, actually that, that lean into digital and the importance of digital, which has only become um, more exacerbated in the last uh, last 12 months, to be honest with you. Um, we're actually seeing some, some really significant growth coming um, as we come out of the pandemic, um, he says, hopefully. So, uh, you know, from a pure business performance, there's definitely been, it's been, it's been pretty pretty good um, actually by the end of the year. Um, from a, I think from a staffing and a, from a, a team perspective, I think it's been much more challenging. Um, you know, we we haven't um, lost staff. We, we, we're growing the team, but staff mental health, the impact on you know the consistent work from home, the mm. in and out of pandemic, and it's sorry in and out of lockdown. Um, you know, those have been significant challenges which. I think have been the real focus for us as a business. You know, we've obviously needed to look after our customers and make sure they're well served, but making sure that the team are in a, a good place to deliver that work um, is has been the crucial challenge we've faced over the last 12 to 15 months. And having to do that motivation and people management from a distance as well, I imagine that can't be easy either. No, it, that's not been easy. And, you know, we, we, we all thrive off that face-to-face interaction, don't we, and spending time with each other. Um, and 
we implemented a few things um, in the early stages of uh, of lockdown, which I think were really helpful. Um, I, I, as a leader in the business, I set up a, a regular daily video um, that I was I'd, I'd record and send out to the team. Um, sort of towards the end of the day as things were, were updating and progressing and a, and a bit like uh, Boris's press conferences as, as the uh, lockdown sort of went on, those became a bit less frequent, but that became a consistent basis. We implemented, um, you know, team drinks on a, a Friday afternoon, um, which was all, all virtual. We've run a variety of virtual events, but there's been no doubt that, that there's times when those, um, that lack of one-to-one communication um, has been more challenging for us as a business and keeping everybody everybody going. And, and it's a little bit harder as well to identify when someone's struggling um, as well. You know, in, in an office environment or a team environment, you can you often can see or sense that, and that's part of, you know, looking after the team. Um, so we've had to put in place um, some methods where we've uh, really worked on our, our mental health understanding, um, and we've put in place uh, feedback tools where, you know, we ask people to give themselves a rating for how they've how they've gone, gone done this week, how they're feeling at a particular time, um, and if we if an issue comes up, we'll we'll look to proactively respond to that. Um, so we've learned quite a bit about that sort of mental health understanding um, during this period and trying to keep people motivated um, and up and running. But it, it's certainly not been simple. And with regards to sort of mental health personally, um, what we have been doing at the Leaders Council a lot recently is talking about the effects of stress and burnout on CEOs and business leaders. So when you sort of need to step away from the hectic world of running the business and keeping everyone motivated yourself, do you find it easy to recharge the batteries as and when you need to as well? <laughs> um, I I, uh, I, do a great, I do a lot of exercise, Scott. So my, my time to myself and my recharge time is, is the physical side of things. So I, I might run, um, I run quite a lot. So I might get out and run for a couple of hours. And that is something that allows me to be away from everything, have my thoughts to myself or potentially with a podcast or something like that, which just resets that side of things for me. Um, that being said, though, I think I also personally, you know, really find the holiday time away from, you know, my current setting and be, being, really fully away from home and work um, to be really helpful and really important. Um, and obviously the inability to travel, you know, sort of impacts that. Um, so that's something which I'm certainly looking forward to getting back to when we can. Um, it's interesting you mentioned um, sort of travel there because there's been a lot about sort of business efficiency and also sustainable operations that have come under the uh, the microscope over the last few months as well and whether we do need to be sort of traveling around whether we can sort of work from home improve our work-life balance and be more efficient in the way that we operate so i suppose what we can expect coming out of this is that the way we do business in this country is going to be much changed isn't it i think so scott um I think what's interesting is is if you you know we we're we're a business based in Birmingham. Um, you know we have clients in London and um, all, all parts of the country and and outside. And you know if you if you think about being invited to a, a one hour meeting in in London um, from Birmingham, the idea of getting on a train or in a car and driving two hours for a one hour meeting and back again um, feels feels quite a long time ago in terms of our mindset, doesn't it? Um, you know, replacing that with a video call. Um, 
So I do think those changes will be interesting. I think the work from home balance is interesting. We've moved, we ran a, a, a poll with our team in terms of the balance that the team would like um, in terms of a, ret- a return to the office and what people are looking for. And they've um, voted for a two days in the office, three days at home split. That's been the, um, as a minimum, um, which we've, uh, which we've implemented. So I think there will be quite a few changes that, that, that has and the knock-on effect that that will have on cities and the wider community will be really interesting to see. Um, but I think there are a couple of things to be careful of there. I think one, the greater efficiency in inverted commas can come at the cost of burnout for staff and others and that mm-hmm. lack of separation between um, work and home life, which I do think is important. Um, and I also think, you know, we, we want to be careful of of just ongoing, if we're never away from work, you know, are we really being productive? No, are we really being efficient? I think those are really interesting side plots that will come out of perhaps this changed work balance. I think that's very, very right indeed. And it is interesting, isn't it, when you sort of blur that line between sort of home and working life and what the consequences are of that. So that's something certainly for industry to keep a close eye on. And thinking about sort of your experience as a whole over the last 14 months in managing through such a difficult and tragic time, um, I can imagine that you feel you've come out of this having learned an awful lot, not just about yourself, but also about those people that you work with and maybe how resilient they are. Yeah, that's a really, really, really good point. I think, you know, every situation is a learning experience, isn't it, um, Scott? And I think that's something as a business we really try and focus on is to use, utilize those, those things. Um, I think the resilience of team members and, and, and the team that we have at Digital Glue has been, has been extraordinary, really. Um, you know, we employ, um, a wide range of people, but but often quite a lot of young people out of universities and early stages of their career. And, you know, it's okay for someone like you or I to be working at at home, maybe as a garden and the like, but if you're in a flat and you're working alongside your partner and these kind of things, these are extraordinarily difficult things to manage. Um, And yet people have produced outstanding work. Um, People have been extraordinarily committed to the business. Um, and they've also managed to progress in their own personal lives during, during the time. I think there's a sort of power, power in the, the human ability to adapt to our situation and to, to thrive on that. And we've really seen a huge amount of that. And I'm sure that, I mean, you know, we, we, we work in, um, you know, digital marketing and, uh, and the like. And we're certainly mm-hmm. not in the same sort of peril as the, the guys that, that in the NHS who really, um, you know, put themselves at the front line of this. Um, but at the same time, we have seen a real adaptability um, an ability to, to flourish despite things being difficult. Um, and on a personal level, you know, I think um, I certainly learned that I would not be suited to a career in teaching my children, Scott. So um, that's been, <laughs> been one highlight. Yeah, it certainly has been a challenge that people have had to get to grips with, isn't it? Sort of home educating their children while the education sector has been um, essentially paused. And although it has been such an incredibly difficult period of time, I can imagine maybe for the experience that you've had, you feel that you've come out stronger as a collective as well, both individually and also as a whole business. Yeah. I mean, I think as a, as a company, there's no doubt we're in a stronger position than we were at the start of the pandemic, which is, is fascinating. I think that's two sides. Um, one was, I think we were, we were looking to make changes to the business, the way we operated. Um, 
anyway, heading into the uh, pandemic. And when it hit, it both accelerated that requirement for change. Um, and it also, I guess, stress tested that change to to the most significant degree. All of a sudden, we were going to move straight away into a, a work from home environment. And how are we going to operate and how are we going to be efficient? So that stress test means that I feel much more confident that whatever comes our way um, in the future, um, we're much more much more well geared up to deal with, handle, and respond to. Um, and you know, I think that's that's been reflected. And we're a people-based business. You know, that's all, that's where our value is, mm. um, and that's been reflected by the way the team have handled that as well. So, I agree with that completely. Um, I think learning that learning experience and that resilience is is a key thing. Um, are two key themes when you're trying to create a strong culture within a team, you know, when you're trying to build out the team to asking those guys to develop and to keep progressing, um, it's utilizing the good situations and the difficult situations to build out and to continue to grow. And I think that's a key feature that I believe is really important in business growth and personal growth. And just for some of those younger viewers out there that might be tuning into this, of course, um, that may be sort of the entrepreneurial um, kind of stock, if you will, and um, maybe thinking about starting businesses for themselves or going into their first role, um, what advice would you give them to really sort of get them on the road to success in this current climate? Um, I think my biggest thing from an entrepreneurial point of view or from a, a leadership point of view, depending on how you look at it, is, you, is people start on that journey of being being a leader um, and being an entrepreneur, taking hold of a business. Um, there are certain things that um, a leader, a CEO, can't delegate, really. Um, and the two parts that I think are the most crucial are the where do we want to get to, the vision, but the way the vision of a business of where we want to get to has to start is where we are now. Um, and the where we are now sort of position today um, is the question that I think is the most difficult to answer, actually. We can all espouse a vision for where we want our company to get to. Um, but being honest about our current position, our strengths, our weaknesses, the things we have to work on, that's the key to enable us to then identify the hurdles that are going to be in our way on our journey to, towards our vision. So I think that's the first key thing. Um, and the second thing is to is, is around culture that you want to create um, and you want to, 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 to establish in your business. Um, and culture, especially in my industry, in the marketing world, can often be uh, mistaken um, for beanbags and pool tables in an office as opposed to the behaviours which really establish yourselves and the style of business you are. Good culture is about consistent behaviours that are delivered well, respect for your colleagues, high quality of work and holding to each other to account these kind of things that might be important. And it's very important that you don't mistake culture for fluffy things around the edges, but rather the behaviours that you and your team are going to exhibit on a day-to-day -day basis. And those are the two areas that I would emphasise. 
I think that's something incredibly important, not just for up and coming business people, but also those who are established within firms to think about as well there for sure, Javen. And um, just thinking about sort of the future now before we do wrap things up, because I am conscious that we're starting to run short of time this morning. Um, We know that there is now a roadmap out of social restrictions there. There's a plan for the economy to begin reopening as it has started to do so now. But as we start to hopefully emerge from the COVID situation for good, fingers crossed, where is it that you really hope for Digital Glue to be maybe this time in a year? And what is it that you're really hoping to achieve over these coming months? Yeah, for, for Digital Glue, we've, um, our mission as a business is to maximise potential. Um, we, look to, we want to maximise potential of the clients we work with um, and the people um, who work in the business. Um, and for, to do that, we've got to grow because we've got to add more um, more clients to that we're working with, so that we're helping more people, um, and we've got to grow our team. Um, so we're looking to um, purely financially, we're looking to um, go towards doubling our our revenue over the next twelve months. Um, and in terms of achieving that, we're looking to establish uh, presence in in the United States over the next twelve months as a business, um, and we've got in a uh, independent business in the US to help us with our clients that we have based over in North America and also um, vice versa. Um, And I think fundamentally it's about us continuing to deliver the kind of services and the kind of quality of service we have um, in the UK, but also expanding that into other areas. And that's our geographies and markets. And that's our our key focus over the next 12 months. as we continue to deliver for for our clients at the moment. It's testament to the resilience of business that those words expansion and growth are even being talked about in this current climate. And it really does sound like exciting times for Digital Glue for sure. And um, I think actually, Javen, just given the optimism that you're looking uh, to the future with there and uh, the plans for growing the business further, continually developing, I think it would be great to perhaps welcome you back onto the show at some point in this next year, just to see how things are getting on and we can just gauge then what kind of shape the global economy is in as a result of moving out of these restrictions here. It would be an absolute pleasure, Scott. It's an absolute pleasure. I thoroughly enjoy that as well, Jabe. And it's been a real eye-opening experience for myself and the listeners having you join us today. And just because we're not quite out of the woods with this yet, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all that is still going on. And yourself, Scott. Many thanks for that. It was a real pleasure for me to welcome Javen Bramall, owner of Digital Glue, onto today's podcast. And coming up next on the show today, we'll be joined by former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, Since retiring from playing, he spent a period of time as director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. But during his playing days, he was one of only three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia, joining a very illustrious club. And he also racked up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. So quite an impressive resume and he will be joining us on the show next hello and welcome i'm jonathan white and today we are joined by sir andrew strauss former captain of the england cricket team and former director of cricket at the ecb sir andrew thank you very much for joining us today real pleasure to be here thank you the pleasure is all of ours you know and you've had a distinguished career as i said both on and off the pitch in english cricket recognized not least with your knighthood for services to support so congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know 
Have you finally forgiven Marcus Dress Gothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dress Gothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And... Um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then, you know, when he got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost i'd been i was a middlesex player i was Mm. captain of middlesex all my focus was on helping middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever and then a week later i've scored a test century which is something i'd always dreamed out literally all my life and then the thought of doing it at lords in your first test i mean it was literally the dream so and then suddenly i started thinking wow hold on potentially i've got a whole england career ahead of me and everything that entails so it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think... In those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um source of advice for me so he was captain of Millsets bef- you know, a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role you know just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that you know you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world, and uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 
Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure, no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years I went god Charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising I haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and I went well join the club you right. know and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was Number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that you know that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and the you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th- there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just 
clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and you know if and when that happens that that should be a problem for a leadership and if it isn't a problem then you're not doing your but job absolutely um and with, with all that in mind actually uh and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question but what advice would you give to others in a similar position leading a team um being looked up to what would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? 
Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move as times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what did the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. because I Yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you do explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well you never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die... Um, we learned a lot in that process, and and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth 
before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f- focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so, numbers yeah i mean it, it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh cancer anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's a, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events. There, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be. Yeah. So the, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about. Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing red. Uh, wearing red. So it w- w- what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. You know, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, 
before we go, because I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket. Um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but... In two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.